Good evening, everyone. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm delighted to see you here, especially with the rain that was coming down earlier. I worried uh, that some of you might float away, but I'm delighted that you did not. Uh, on behalf of our board of trustees and my colleague here on staff, I'd like to welcome you to the 22nd annual J. Harvey Wilkinson Jr. Lecture. In the more than two decades of holding this event, it has become a much anticipated fixture on the VHS calendar. Of course, many of you have been in the audience for many Wilkinson lectures past. Raise your hands if you've been to Wilkinson lectures in the past. Look at that. <laughs> I love repeat business. But uh, even so, it's appropriate, though, the, though you've heard this before, uh, to, for me to remind you, to remind you that this lecture is named in memory of J. Harvey Wilkinson, Jr., one of the leading figures in 20th century Virginia banking. Harvey Wilkinson was respected in financial circles well beyond the Commonwealth, that's true. But he's also remembered, especially here in Virginia, for his deep interest in promoting education at all levels. And so it's fitting that these lectures featuring our country's most distinguished historians and writers are named in his memory. This series that is now 22 years old was made possible, made possible by generous gifts to the Historical Society from the Wilkinson family. And I'm delighted that members of the family are with us again tonight, including Harvey Wilkinson's son, Jay, who I am proud to call one of my bosses as he sits on the VHS Board of Trustees. So I just would like to say thank you. Thank you to all the Wilkinson family for making it possible, and thanks to all of you who have supported this program and others here at the VHS with your donations. So let's give a round of applause to the Wilkinsons and everyone who makes this possible. And finally, before I uh, introduce our speaker tonight, one little bit of housekeeping. And this is a bit of housekeeping we didn't have to do 22 years ago. And that is to say, if you have a little electronic monster in your pocket, please take it out and turn it off. I like to hear the squeals, the anguished squeals as these things get silenced. Um, but do it during my time, not during our speakers. I appreciate that. Ah, that's music to my ears. It truly is. <laughs> now, in the course of more than two decades of Wilkinson Lecturers, we have had only a couple of repeats. So you know the fact that our guest tonight joins the multiple Wilkinson Club is a testament to his abilities as a writer and as a speaker. But it's also evidence that he is a delightful guy. Staff remembers his visit in 2000 very fondly when he was here to talk about his Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Charles Lindbergh. I'm sure many of you were here as well. And let me just tell you something, when you have colleagues going on and on about how wonderful a speaker was to work with, well, you take notice. But in all candor, even if Scott Berg had been a complete heel in his previous visit, we would have had him back. Because in his work, he has a knack for picking subjects and then masterfully telling their stories. And in Woodrow Wilson, Scott has picked a figure who is not only a native Virginian and a monumentally important figure in US history, but is also very much in public consciousness today. Wilson has come in for a bit of a beating at the hands of pundits and others. And so it seems appropriate for one of the premier biographers of our time to take the full measure of the life of this complex and significant man. And on a personal note, as a proud Davidson College graduate, I'm delighted to host a lecture on a man who struggled to graduate from my alma mater <laughs> and had to make his way to Princeton to get a degree. As you might imagine, us Wildcats are a little proud of that fact. Well, our speaker tonight, Scott Berg, is a native of Connecticut, although his screenwriter father moved the family west to Los Angeles when Scott was a boy. After growing up in Southern California, he came east to attend Princeton, and it was there that he wrote a senior thesis that he eventually adapted to become his first book. How many of us wrote senior theses that became 
books. Not, not too many of us. Jay, I know you're an exception, but that's, that's just a, the way it is. That thesis uh, became the National Book Award winning Max Perkins, editor of Genius, 1978. Now, for those of you who did not collect editor cards the way some of us did baseball players, uh, Perkins was a legendary editor who had a pretty spiffy stable of authors, including Thomas Wolfe, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Ernest Hemingway. Now, since the Perkins book appeared, he has written four others. With one slight exception, they are all part of what he imagined long ago as his life's project, a series of deeply researched, splendidly written biographies of major 20th century US cultural figures. The subjects have been Hollywood producer Samuel Goldwyn, aviator Charles Lindbergh, and now Woodrow Wilson. He took a slight detour along the way to pen the much more personal account of his two-decade friendship with Katharine Hepburn, entitled Kate Remembered. Well, I think that's, not a, that's enough for me because you came to hear Scott and not me. So please join me in a warm welcome back to the VHS for Scott Burke. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Did you enjoy that introduction as much as I did? <laughs> Gosh, I just wanted him to go on and on. It was just fabulous, fabulous. Well, um, quite thrilling. Um, I'm very happy to be back here. My, my thanks to the Wilkinson family. Um, it's a wonderful thing to do, and I hope many more families will step up and do similar things, if not here at other places as well. But I should tell you also, I've spent most of the last year, year and two months actually, on the road talking about Woodrow Wilson everywhere. I've been to historical societies in virtually every city and state that has one. And I tell you this, and I only say this here in Virginia, this is still the gold standard, this place. And no, it really is. Um, and, and when I, and I, even, even Atlanta, which I like a lot, it's a great, great historic society. But this place, it just keeps the, the standards high. And I really appreciate that. And I so appreciate your having me back. It really means a lot to me. Um, so we are going to talk about Woodrow Wilson tonight. Uh, but before we get into Woodrow Wilson, I want to just add a little more to, to some of the things Paul was saying here. Um, just because Woodrow Wilson is obviously one of the most important people and one of my favorite subjects in the world. Uh, but there is another uh, favorite subject I have, and that is me. Um, <clears throat> so I thought, I thought I would take a moment or two just to kind of fill in. You know, I've spent the last, or the prior 13 years until this last year when the book was published, writing about Woodrow Wilson. You know, and people say, well, what else were you doing that, during that time? I don't do anything else during that time. For 13 years, usually seven days a week, I tried only to work six nights a week. I wrote about, studied, researched Woodrow Wilson. So that being said, I think you're entitled to a little explanation as to how or why anyone would do that. Um, but I will tell you how and why I got there. Um, I'm going to go back very briefly, because I do want to run right into, into Wilson territory here. But things I should tell you began prenatally when my mother, um, I'm going I'm to take, take you through high school very quickly, honest, <laughs> honest. <clears throat> you know, I'm not, not going to give you every week of the pregnancy. But, <clears throat> but in my mother's ninth month of pregnancy, it, me, uh, she was reading F. Scott Fitzgerald novels. And my mother became so infatuated, she decided to give birth to a son and to name that son Scott, like F. Scott Fitzgerald. To this day, I'm so thrilled she wasn't reading Charlotte Bronte. Now, <clears throat> so um, anyway, now as promised, uh, in the uh, 11th grade, we had to do a report on an American author. And my, my mother suggested I write about F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, because she said, you know, you were named for him and this and that. And anyway, and I should also tell you this, and this will give you parents, uh, um, uh, grandparents, um, anybody who has somebody in their lives uh, who is not a reader and who is the way I was um, up until age 15, a total television idiot. 
Um, and I came home to say, I, you know, I've got to write this thing, and I, I can't really think of um, a writer to write about. And my mother said, well, of, of course not, because you've never read one. Um, <laughs> Okay. Well, in any case, I, she introduced me to F. Scott Fitzgerald, and I really got hooked on him, such that by the time I graduated from Palisades High School in Pacific Palisades, California, I had read every word by and about F. Scott Fitzgerald in the English language, literally, starting with my, my public high school and working up to the UCLA library. Now, um, at around this same time, my mother you know, one good book leads to another. My mother also put into my hands a book called When the Cheering Stopped, which some of you may remember. It came out in 1965, and it was about Woodrow Wilson and the role his second wife, Edith, uh, played. And in any case, I began to read that, and I got extremely carried away, such that up on my wall when I was 15 years old went a poster of Woodrow Wilson a campaign poster. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, everybody had one of those. <laughs> well, well, yes, I know, I know. Um, but it wasn't just Fitzgerald, I, uh, or Wilson I had up there. I also had F. Scott Fitzgerald's picture, and I also had Don Quixote's picture up there. Um, now, um, it, you know, you can see there's a through line, actually. <laughs> Honestly, there is. They are all rather tragic idealists. And when I was 15 years old, I was deeply into tragic idealism. I mean, and I don't know which I liked more, the tragedy or the idealism, but in any case, well, there was that. There was also another through line, which is that they had all gone off to Princeton, um, except for Don Quixote, um, <laughs> who did not get in, by the way. Very, very low board scores, I was told <clears throat> he had. In any case, um, off I went to Princeton. There I began to do research on Fitzgerald, my very second day on the Princeton campus. And it was there that I used to go whenever I had any free time, going through the Fitzgerald archives, going through the archives of his publishers, Charles Scribner's sons. And there <coughs> I encountered the incredible correspondence between Fitzgerald and his book editor, Maxwell Perkins, um, a man uh, who literally discovered Fitzgerald, and then, as you were told by Paul, also Hemingway, Ring Lardner, uh, Douglas Freeman here from, from Virginia, um, uh, Taylor Caldwell, Erskine Caldwell, just an endless volley. I mean, in essence, this one man changed the course of American literature. I thought, wouldn't that be an interesting subject for a book? And I went to one of the great professors at Princeton, a biographer himself named Carlos Baker, to discuss this idea. He said, it's a great idea. Why don't you start by doing a senior thesis? Because truth be told, Scott, the real question is not whether it's a good idea for a book, but whether you could do that book. So let's get real here. You're 19 years old, and well, what can we say? Um, well, he said, and I've seen your transcript. Um, so, <laughs> so. Uh, I did write my senior thesis on Max Perkins. When I graduated, they gave me not only um, an A plus and a thesis prize, but they passed it back with four single space typed pages, saying this is not really, really a senior thesis. It's really the first draft of a book. And we hope Scott Berg will turn the thesis into a book. What they failed to tell me is that it would take another seven years to do that. But you know, it's a powerful impulse not to want to go to law school. <laughs> Some of you can appreciate that. Um, and so, and so I did spend the next seven years writing that book, which was published. It became a bestseller. It won a prize. But here's the best thing that happened. I was two years into that book when I began to think wouldn't it be interesting to write not just a biography, but what about a life in which I write a shelf full of biographies about 20th century American culture, for which I had a genuine affinity? And what, what if I selected a half dozen figures, each of whom came from a different part of the country, each of whom came from a different wedge, of the great American apple pie. 
So after writing about Max Perkins, who was a ninth generation white Anglo-Saxon Protestant who went to Harvard, went into New York publishing, my second book was about a first generation East European Jewish immigrant, semi-literate named Shmuel Gelbfish, who came to this country, went out west to a place we now call Hollywood, and changed his name to Samuel Goldwyn. Hmm, that could be a good story. Then, after doing the West Coast, I looked to the Midwest. What are the great, what are the great metaphors, I thought, for 20th century America, the, the way the motion picture camera had been? And of course, I thought of the airplane. I thought, who's the great embodiment of the airplane? And just all my thinking kept going to Charles Lindbergh. And so, after, well, after learning that Lindbergh left voluminous archives, but that they were locked up, I also learned there was a little asterisk in his will that said if his surviving widow, the great Anne Morrow Lindbergh, perhaps the greatest diarist of the century in American letters, if Anne Morrow Lindbergh and three of her five children settled on somebody, that one person could get into that archive. Well, where there's a will, there's a way. And so I uh, tracked down Mrs. Lindbergh, began chasing her through the mail, and finally, uh, after a week-long meeting, uh, she agreed to let me write the biography of her husband. And then, after that, I began to think of the South. And now we are finally approaching our current subject. And I began to think, I'd like to write about a figure from the South. Most people to this day don't realize Woodrow Wilson was a Southerner. Um, and I hadn't written about politics, government, or higher education, which is an extremely important aspect of Woodrow Wilson's life, as I will tell you in a minute. And I discussed this with my publisher, who said, that's a wonderful idea. I'd love for you to do that. Before you do that book, though, just one thing I wanted to ask. She said, I know you don't really talk about this, but I know you often go off on weekends or trips or you stay in New York with Katharine Hepburn. She seems to be a very good friend of yours. Have you ever thought of writing a book about her? And I said, well, it's funny you should mention that uh, because I, at that point, had known Katharine Hepburn about 12 years. Uh, and I said, uh, it's something she would very much like for me to do. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I don't know if I can do it because she said, uh, you know, I really couldn't publish anything while she was alive. And my publisher said, but you're sure she wants you to write about her? And I said, yes, I can tell you this. The second night I met her, we were having dinner. And at the end of dinner, she said, you know, you should really write about me. <laughs> um, um, and I said, well, yes, I, I suppose I should. And because, because I'm fascinating. <clears throat> um, well, of course, she, she was fascinating. And, and, um, and in any case, for 20 years, every time we had a meal, a drink, a trip, or whatever, she would always say the same thing, go upstairs and write down everything I said tonight. Why? Because I'm fascinating. And of course, she was. And I took it all down. And indeed, I have 20 years of notes. So there it was, and that became that book. And so now, that book is published uh, literally two weeks after she died, a book called Kate Remembered, and now we get up to Woodrow Wilson. Now, he's been with me most of my life, since I was 15 years old, and that was quite a, it's so long ago, I can't remember how long ago that was. <clears throat> so, here's what I've come to think over these years, over these decades, and it's something that has become clearer and clearer in my mind about Woodrow Wilson. And I hope I can spread some of this to all of you tonight. And it is this. Well, I have two problems, actually. The first is this. I believe Woodrow Wilson is the most influential figure of the 20th century, period. Okay, yeah, now a lot of you, you're thinking, oh, wait, I can do better than that. You know, well, hear me out, hear me out. The second thing is this, and this is a little more subjective, even though that was pretty subjective. <laughs> but I believe Woodrow Wilson's personal story is the most dramatic personal story ever to unfold in the White House. 
And that's what I wanted to do because that's the kind of book I like not only to read, but to write, which are deeply personal, though properly researched books about these 20th century American figures. In essence, when I do a book, you see, I want to tell the great professional story. I want to tell the story so that you will believe Woodrow Wilson was the most influential figure. But while that story is going on, I want to weave throughout this great personal story. I want to keep it human all the time. That's what I try to deliver in each of my books. And I felt for all the hundreds, probably, no, thousands of books that have been written about Woodrow Wilson, and I'd read hundreds and hundreds of them, I had never found a book that I thought really brought this man to life, that really made me feel what was going on in the life of Woodrow Wilson as a son, as a father, as a husband, as a sibling. I wanted to tell that story. So here we go. Now, we've only got a few minutes tonight. I wish I could do a whole course all year on this. <clears throat> but I can give you at least a few bullet points so that when you go out to the next bar you go to, and you will, <laughs> I want you to win a couple of bets, OK? So here are some bar bets you can win. <clears throat> very important, very important. Here we are at the historical side. Uh, the first thing I think you must remember about Woodrow Wilson at all times, he is the most religious president we have ever had. This is the son of a Presbyterian minister, the grandson of a Presbyterian minister. If you shake the family trees of the Woodrows and the Wilsons, another dozen Presbyterian ministers will just fall to the ground. I mean, they will just litter the place. Presbyterianism everywhere. This is a man up to and through his presidency, who got on his knees twice a day to pray, who read scripture every day of his life, who said grace before every meal of his life. Now, I know we've had a lot of very religious presidents. Usually, they become religious once every four years. <laughs> just saying, just saying. Here was a man for whom religion played such an important part that it informed, it infused every decision, every choice, every thought he ever made in his life, up to and including when he was president of the United States, which in turn is going to change the world. That's all. Woodrow Wilson, to remember, and what more apt place than here, was the first Southerner elected to the White House since the Civil War. This was a great historic event when he got elected in 1912 because it seemed for the first time since the Civil War really seemed as though the two pieces were reunited, that a Southerner had been elected by the nation at large. This was a very big thing. As I don't have to tell most of you here, Woodrow Wilson was a Virginian, born in Stanton in 1856. Woodrow Wilson was very proud of his Virginia heritage. He believed becoming president was practically part of his birthright. By God, he was a Virginian. Now, I should tell you, he only lived in Stanton for about a year and a half before the family moved. Um, and so indeed, when he was campaigning, he could also be a Georgian, a North Carolinian, and a South Carolinian, because he lived there as well. Uh, but this is where his entire childhood was spent, was in the South, in the Confederate States. This is someone whose very first memory, remember he was born in 1856, his first memory, when he's not quite four years old, was when the family uh, was, was living in Augusta, Georgia, and it was November of 1860. Little Woodrow Wilson, then called Tommy Wilson, went outside the house there on the corner in Augusta, and he remembered hearing somebody shouted, Lincoln just got elected. There's going to be a war. Now, this was a three-and-a-half-year-old boy. Now, I make a lot of this in my book, which few books do, 
but I do it because Woodrow Wilson made a lot of it in his life. He talked about it, he wrote about it, he thought about it, and it was because the war really had a deep effect on him. How could it not? He saw his father's church uh, become a hospital. He saw neighbors coming back from the war maimed. He saw a lot of neighbors who did not come home from the war. He carried the trauma, the devastation, the deprivation of the war. He never lost sight of it. And this is going to have a very big play in his life years later when he is president. And he is going to have to contend with the great issue, one of the great issues of the century. And that is, should he lead his country, the United States, into World War I? And he, well, as his campaign slogan was in 1916 for the second term, he kept us out of war. And he kept us out of the war as long as he could. But you see, it's going to be this, well, it's this thread again, the personal thread that is going to interweave with the professional thread. So you have to remember, Woodrow Wilson is the only president we've ever had who grew up in a country that had lost a war, the Confederate States of America. He remembered Reconstruction very well when he was living in, in Columbia, South Carolina. He saw what he thought was a genuine travesty. And he is gonna carry all that with him as he becomes president, of course. Woodrow Wilson is the most educated president we've ever had, period. I didn't say the most intellectual, and I certainly would not say that standing here in the state of Jefferson. Um, <clears throat> I'm, 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 I'm dumb, but not that dumb. <laughs> but he is the most educated. He did go to Davidson College, so does it get more educated than that? I think not. But feeling there might be something else out there. After dropping out of Davidson, to be fair, uh, he did go off to Princeton, where he proved to be a very meritorious uh, scholar. He was a very good student, not the top of his class, but he was very good. And then he's already entertaining notions of politics and government. And he, he actually doped the situation out, which was, well, what do most people do who want to go into politics? They, they read law. They get a law degree. And most of the great, great American political and governmental figures came from Virginia. Uh, so he did the smart thing. He applied to the University of Virginia Law School. And there he went. He read law after he had read quite enough, thank you, and he didn't quite finish his two years in Charlottesville. He decided to open up his own law practice. He moved to Atlanta. He hung out a shingle. And there Woodrow Wilson was now an attorney at law. And he proved to be a truly terrible lawyer. Um, that's slightly unfair, actually. I shouldn't say he proved to be that, because he didn't prove anything, because he had a problem. He never had a single client. Well, he had one. He had one client, his mother. Um, uh, who came to him. She had a little legal work that needed to be done in Georgia, actually, right, you know, not far from where he was, in a little town called Rome, Georgia. And so uh, Mrs. Wilson asked her boy, now called Woodrow, no longer Tommy, because he's a grown man, you see. And so Woodrow Wilson went to Rome, Georgia, uh, where he settled in a state that, of a relative of, of, of his mother. And in any case, there, wouldn't you know it, the Presbyterian minister's son met the local Presbyterian minister's daughter and fell instantly in love with her, instantly wanted to marry her uh, until it occurred certainly to her and maybe to him that he didn't have a job, really. Uh, he couldn't support one of them, uh, to say nothing of two of them. So he began to think about where he was going to go to get you know, a, a career. And he began to think it's really not going to happen in government and politics, so he chose academia. He loved school, and he decided for that reason he would go to graduate school, and there he went to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and Woodrow Wilson became our first, and to this day only president with a PhD in a brand new field of study. It was brand new then that we now call political science. Woodrow Wilson became one of the first political scientists in this country. 
And in fact, his, his PhD dissertation became his first book. Or actually, the other way around. He wrote a book on the side, and they said, oh, we'll take that as your PhD dissertation, which, which they did. Woodrow Wilson then began a teaching career. Um, now, you know, the one good thing I should tell you, while he was at Johns Hopkins, and his wife was a very talented artist and a very charming, literate woman still down in Georgia. Um, but the one great thing that happened for me, the biographer, because they were separated and couldn't get married for a couple of years, Woodrow Wilson and his wife, Ellen Axon, or soon-to-be wife, Ellen Axon Wilson, exchanged thousands, thousands of the most passionate love letters I have ever read. Now, I'm talking Woodrow Wilson here. <clears throat> I'm telling you, these letters, I've read the Brownings, the Adamses, but this is just child's play. I mean, these letters, they are romantic, they are sexual, they are intellectual, they are artistic, they are newsy, they are everything you can imagine a love letter to be. Thousands of them. In any case, when he finally finished his PhD, finally uh, got a job, they married, they moved to Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, a brand new all-female college outside of Philadelphia. He taught there for a little while, he moved on to Wesleyan, and then he got, if indeed he was going to have a career in teaching, the call he had rather hoped for, and that was to teach at his alma mater of Princeton. <clears throat> now, those of you who have been to college or know someone who has gone to college, I'm sure you remember on campus there was at least that one great professor who gave the great lecture. That was Woodrow Wilson. He was involved in the baseball team, the football team. He was just everywhere you could go. Wherever you looked up, there was Professor Wilson. Classes that used to have four or five students suddenly had 250 people coming for the lectures to hear Woodrow Wilson. The lectures are getting beyond political science now. They're starting to get into contemporary life, really the politics of the day. He is just so indispensable to Princeton, the campus, and Princeton, the community, that in 1902, after he had been on this campus for 12 years, the trustees decided they needed a new president, and they unanimously elected Professor Woodrow Wilson. He became the 13th president of Princeton, and now he took not only this campus by storm, he took higher education in this country by storm. I will put it to you quite succinctly. If you went to college, or know someone who went to a college, in which you majored in something, in which you had perhaps two lectures a week and then a small class that it broke down into, in which you had maybe what they call distribution requirements, in which you have to take classes outside of your major or your larger discipline, in which you took some elective courses, in which perhaps you even had an honor code that you had to sign when you took an exam or turned in a paper. If you had that model, you studied under the Wilsonian version of higher education. This is something Woodrow Wilson put together as a model for Princeton, and every Princetonian to this day studies under that method, as indeed do students from practically every college and university in this country, now a century later. Few realize it, but it is the Wilsonian method. There you have it. Now, Wilson, having changed the academic model, now wanted to change the social model on the campus. He felt Princeton was an exclusive, snobby campus. He was a poor minister's son from the South. He knew the hardships of that. He wanted to break down the walls of this social structure there. And he was finding great resistance from the very wealthy alums, especially the board of trustees, who rather liked the system. And indeed, they were about to give him the boot which is hard to imagine. This is now up to 1910. And now something kind of amazing happened. A man knocked on his door. And the man's name was Sugar Jim Smith. Now, I don't know what line of work any of you has ever been in. But whatever it is, wherever you have come from, 
beware of men named Sugar Jim. <laughs> you know? Well, Sugar Jim, you see, he was a scary guy. Sugar Jim was, in fact, well, let's say, Sugar Jim was the boss of the Democratic Party in New Jersey in 1910. Now, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna make a statement, you're gonna have to buy it to buy the rest of the story. So just come with me on this, all right? Please. In 1910, go with me, go with me. In 1910, New Jersey was <laughs> the most corrupt state in America. <laughs> no, I know. I know, you're saying Scott, Scott, no, no, not New Jersey. <laughs> no, but, no, but really, I mean it. <laughs> I mean it. And Sugar Jim, you see, r really ran the politics in this state. Well, in any case, here's how corrupt, Sugar Jim was so corrupt that he knew how corrupt he was. And that he, that he was so corrupt that he knew he needed a really good puppet to run in the gubernatorial election of 1910 in New Jersey. So he began to think, who is the squeaky cleanest man in the state of New Jersey? What about Professor Wilson, who's running Princeton over there? You know, let's, and he's a college professor. My God, we could push him around. What could be better than that? And so here's Sugar Jim knocking on the door of the president's house at Princeton saying, sir, would you like to run for governor of the state of New Jersey? And I can pretty much assure you, you're gonna get elected. <laughs> Uh, and Wilson uh, said, well, sir, you know, he about to lose his job in academia. I would like to run. Uh, and indeed, he did. And he won in a landslide. <laughs> now, he's in office three weeks. The first thing he does as governor of New Jersey is get rid of the Democratic machine. He literally bars Sugar Jim from entering government buildings or any of his men. Do you understand? In three weeks, he broke the machine. And now everybody, not just in New Jersey, but people all across the country are now looking at this man thinking, my God, this is presidential timber. And wouldn't you know it, in a year and a half, there's going to be a presidential election. Now, here's the next big bet you can win. Woodrow Wilson enjoyed the most meteoric rise in American history, period. In 1910, October of 1910, he is still the president of a small college in New Jersey. In 1912, he's elected president of the United States. It's one of the most exciting elections in American history because Woodrow Wilson, the Democrat, ran against the sitting Republican president, William Howard Taft, and if you can picture him, that was a big sit, too. <coughs> uh, and, and, cheap joke, cheap joke, but you know. Uh, and he also ran against a third-party candidate, Theodore Roosevelt, former president, who had bolted from the Republican Party because he didn't like where Taft had taken it. So he is gonna run as the independent, as a progressive, as a bull moose. And indeed, just to make it colorful, there's a fourth candidate who is Eugene Debs, the great socialist. So here we have this great four-way race. Now Debs was never gonna win, but here's the interesting thing about this election, perhaps such as we have never had. And that was, this was really an election about ideas. And it was an election of four great orators, four people who really spoke well. But nobody spoke as well, as eloquently, as high-mindedly as Woodrow Wilson. And in so doing, not only did Woodrow Wilson get elected president in the greatest electoral landslide the country had yet seen, but he really changed the way politicians functioned. You know, we don't have recordings of him well, we, ha we, we have recordings of speeches and we have silent film footage of him, but we don't see them integrated. But when you even see the silent films of, say, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, you'll see his fist going up, you know, and, you know, and he's talking like a 19th century actor. When you see Woodrow Wilson on the campaign trail, 
He's very measured. He changed the way political people spoke. He spoke in modern language. He addressed people directly, you see. And he never, and this I think is one of the things that really clinched it for him, he never cheapened his rhetoric. He never lowered his vocabulary. He spoke to everybody as though they were his students at Princeton, as though they were colleagues on his faculty. And as a result of that, the lower classes especially really warmed to Woodrow Wilson because they felt elevated by him. It was a fantastic thing. It was his great eloquence, which will come up again and again in his life. Now, Woodrow Wilson got elected. He introduced the greatest progressive agenda the country had ever seen. Within a few months and within the first few years, he changed the entire economy of this subject, lowering the tariff, introducing the modern income tax with its graduated rates. He started something called the Federal Reserve System, which is now 100 years old. Our economy is all based on a couple of Wilsonian tent poles, child labor laws, trusting busts, uh, bu busting trusts much more than <laughs> trusting busts. You know, you know, I haven't trusted a good bust because, you know, in the modern age, and I said this was going to be about the 21st century, you just never know what's in that bust. Um, but, but I, but, am I turning red? Am I? <laughs> I digress. But he, so, he was, so he's, he's busting trusts. Uh, left and right, uh, and he put the first Jew, Louis Brandeis, on the Supreme Court. He is just going one thing after another, really revolutionizing what's going on in Washington, again through his rhetoric, by the way he worked with Congress. Because Wilson, and this is another, this is another thing you're going to have to come with me on, Wilson being a great political scientist, you see, he understood government. And he had this really funny belief, get ready for this, that the legislative branch of this government, the Congress, get ready, and the executive branch, the president, should cooperate. <laughs> and I mean this quite literally. He believed they should cooperate the government, that a president should come up with an agenda and not just send it out there, he was down on Capitol Hill five day, days a week sometimes, twisting elbows, making them understand, sitting them down in a classroom and just explaining the logistics of his laws. And this is how he got so much legislation passed. He was on this great juggernaut and was stopped by two great things. The first is that in the summer of 1914, a war broke out in Europe. The second thing is, that very week, his beloved wife, Ellen, the thousands of love letters, died. And now, the president is so distraught, so destroyed, he can hardly get out of bed. He's talking about resigning from the presidency. He really can't go on. He doesn't know what to do. And then it was his Presbyterian sense of duty, go back to most religious president, realizing something's got to be done here with the United States as the world is about to fall apart. And so Woodrow Wilson did get out of bed and basically led the neutral nations and tried everything he could to get this war to stop before it even started and throughout the war while it was going on, everything he could do to stop it. But the German belligerency just got worse and worse. And indeed, they were torpedoing ships neutral ships, American lives were being lost, most famously on the Lusitania, but indeed there were another dozen ships in which hundreds of American lives were being lost. The United States had to respond. He tried every diplomatic effort. Germany just played games with him until finally, on April 2nd, 1917, after he had been reelected for keeping us out of war, Woodrow Wilson called a joint session of Congress 
in which he gave a speech that I believe is the most important foreign policy speech in the history of this nation. Because in the middle of that speech is a single sentence. That sentence most famously is, the world must be made safe for democracy. Now whether you like that sentence or not, whether you agree with that sentence or not, every foreign policy decision in this country since 1917 has been based on that very sentence. So whether it is invading Mexico, whether it's Haiti, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's what to do about, about Syria, Crimea, any place you want to name. Here we are in the 21st century, you know, this 19th century man operating in the 20th century, laying down a policy that is still 100 years later, what we work by, it all goes back to Woodrow Wilson. And where does that go back to? It goes back again to his being the most religious president we ever had because what Woodrow Wilson was suggesting is there must be a moral component to American foreign policy. We are now big enough, we are wealthy enough, we have potential enough that we cannot just look after ourselves, we must look after even neighbors far away. When we see Germany trample over Belgium just because Belgium happened to be sitting there to, because the Germans were on their way to France, do we just look the other way? Do we do nothing? When there are atrocities around the world, does the United States do nothing? Do we not have a moral obligation? That's all Woodrow Wilson. So we go to war ultimately. We win that war. Make no mistake about it. They had been fighting for years, gaining no ground on either side, losing tens of millions of young men. And we fought, we were in the war for about a year and a half, but actively fighting for about six months. The war was soon over. The reason Woodrow Wilson ultimately took us into that war, I believe, is he believed he could be the engineer, the author of the peace. And indeed, after the war was over, Woodrow Wilson went to Paris to negotiate the peace on behalf of the United States. He was gone for six months. The President of the United States left the country for six months and negotiated this because he had 14 points he wanted included. He got most of them, but he got the most important one, which is the 14th point, which is something he called a League of Nations. And Woodrow Wilson believed if every country sat down at a table such that whenever something erupted somewhere in the world, they would discuss it, they would all agree to iron it out at the table before any of them went off to war. And in so doing, Wilson believed, we will have fought the war to end all wars. Now, Wilson came back from Paris. Well, it was a shock what he found. The Republicans were taking over. You know, there was a huge vacuum in this country. The Democratic leader was gone. And now Wilson comes back and finds a rather Republican Congress, and he finds great hostility toward him and toward his program. And when he realizes the Senate, which is the only body that has the authority to, uh, to accept the peace treaty, when they were not going to accept it, Wilson decided to take his case to the people. And so he did, even though his health was not very good. But he and his wife, oh, did I tell you he had a second wife? <laughs> oh, yes. He met a young, attractive widow living in Washington. And wouldn't you know, he courted her. He wrote her hundreds of the most passionate love letters. <laughs> These love letters, I mean, the other, I mean, the ones to Ellen, they were fine, but that was just sort of a young man talking to a young, this now, he's got to convince this widow you know, to marry this, you know, kind of battered president right now. And he succeeded. And so now Wilson goes around the country. He's on a 29-city tour in the summer of 1919 to convince the people we need a League of Nations. And he is halfway across his, on his tour. He's made it to California. He's on his way back. And just outside uh, in, in Colorado, uh, he collapses and they rush him back to Washington, where three days later, the president suffers a stroke. 
Now here's where the story gets good. For a year and a half, nobody knew the President of the United States had suffered a stroke. And I believe the second Mrs. Wilson, Edith Bowling Galt Wilson, a Virginian, a direct descendant of Pocahontas herself, that Edith Wilson and two or three doctors basically developed the greatest conspiracy in American history because the three of them basically decided nobody shall know that the president was in bed. He was paralyzed on one side. After a few months, he could speak. He could still think, but his emotions were all over the place. Everything was all over the place. But make no mistake about it, for the last year and a half of the Wilson administration, the executive branch of the government was run by Mrs. Wilson. Nobody could see the president. Nothing came before him. Nothing got a signature without Mrs. Wilson reading it, deciding upon it, and handing it to her husband. So it can be reasonably argued <laughs> that Edith Bowling Galt Wilson, remember her name, became the first female president of the United States. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. Wilson left the office the most, well, the lamest duck we've ever had in there, I must say. He is the only president to remain in Washington, D.C. You can visit his house on S Street, which is just a fantastic, I call it a museum, but it's, because they do, but it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a living home. You expect Wilson to come down the stairs at any minute. It's left just the way it was in the 1920s when he was there. And Wilson had a rather sad demise, you see. He was replaced by Warren Harding, who undid almost all the good Woodrow Wilson had done. And Wilson just faded away physically, mentally, emotionally, except for this. The next Veterans Day, a few hundred people gathered outside Wilson's house on S Street. The next year, 5,000 people gathered. The next year, 20,000 people were outside his house. You see, Wilson had become this great symbol of peace and freedom, even though he was no longer in office and was starting to be remembered and, and wanted again, needed again, for all those other reasons, all the things he brought, his intellectualism, his morality, and so forth. Well, it turned out to be a rather inspirational finish in the end. We are not put into this world to sit still and know, said Woodrow Wilson. We are put in it to act. Well, I hope all of you will sit still long enough to know a little more about Woodrow Wilson, and then I hope you will act. I hope you'll let people know about Woodrow Wilson. I hope you'll go to the bar and win a big bet. <laughs> because, again, whether you like Woodrow Wilson or not, whether you agree with him or not, make no mistake about it, we here today in the 21st century live very much in a world of Woodrow Wilson's creation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Oh, you're kind. See, th see, this is why I think Virginia Historical Society is so great. <laughs> it's not that the society is great, it's that you give good applause. Now, I've talked so much, mostly so I didn't have to take a lot of hard questions. That being said, I'd be happy to take any questions on anything I can answer. Mr. Berg, earlier you spoke of uh, Wilson's effectiveness with Congress, <coughs> and yet it ended up with his demise over the League of Nations. What changed? Did his approach change, or was it just simply a transference uh, from a Democratic to a Republican Congress? Well, that was certainly the major thing that happened. And again, you know, you know, it's a big deal. You know, for the, I mean, for the leader of a party, of a movement, of anything, to leave the country, and you know, he had a very weak vice president, um, a rather pleasant man named Thomas Marshall from Indiana, um, who, whose greatest legacy was in fact. 
uh, his saying what this country needs is a good five cent cigar. Um, and, and, and I mean, that's it. That's it. Um, and and the, the rumor in Washington for decades, I, I don't think it is true, but the rumor is when they finally told him that the president had suffered a stroke and that in fact he might not be long for the world, the rumor was that Vice President Marshall fainted. Um, he came close to that. He didn't actually think. But so, so there's this great vacuum for one. That certainly happened. Wilson now comes home. He's also, I mean, he was physically exhausted. What we now know, and I know this from a cache of papers that has recently surfaced that I was able to go through, uh, uh, documents kept by his personal physician who traveled with him and used to see him every day and make voluminous notes. And what we now realize, or I was able to realize, putting my book together, is that, that Wilson had been suffering small strokes for many years, going as far back as when he had been teaching at Princeton, in fact. And so all this was going on and getting bigger and bigger. So he just didn't have the intensity, the strength that he did. And you could see him, as you will in the book, that he, he rallies for each of these speeches on the road, which are, they're magnificent. And you know, Wilson could go out there for an hour without a note and just, I mean, just dazzle, dazzle. But he's falling apart inside. So that certainly had a lot to do with it. And then there's also, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, we see it, we see it like in, in England with its prime ministers after wars. You know, suddenly, you know, the war's over. Let's just let's just forget all this stuff. Let's forget this high-minded stuff. Do, we've done enough in Europe already. Let's just let's just come home. And indeed, Harding gets elected in 1920, running against the League of Nations and saying basically, let's get back to normalcy. You know, the white picket fence that we never go beyond. So all those were participating factors. Sir, in in your book, you mentioned that. Um, Years later, that Franklin Roosevelt said that uh, he had some indications that Lodge and the Republicans agreed that it didn't matter what Wilson brought back. He hadn't even left for Europe, but they weren't <coughs> going to approve it. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, you, you bring up something really, um, a really interesting detail to me, I think, which is, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and this came up. Um, in, in a small document in the Franklin Roosevelt um, papers. And if you don't realize it, Franklin Roosevelt's first national job was working for Woodrow Wilson. He was the undersecretary of the Navy um, during, during the war, in fact, so in, during World War I. And he really watched um, Wilson very closely and, and quite, quite consciously, I think, modeled himself after Wilson in many ways. In any case, <clears throat> Franklin Roosevelt had a not equally famous, but a famous cousin named Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who was the son of Teddy Roosevelt. She was a wicked little thing. I tell you, she was a nasty piece of work, and, um, and, I, and I loved her. I, I met her, actually, when I was doing my first book, because Max Perkins, amazingly, had published her book of memoirs. So I went to interview her, mean, mean as a snake, um, um, but, but just Fabulous. I mean, and you know, she famously had a needle-pointed pillow that said, if you don't have anything nice to say about somebody, sit by me. Uh, <clears throat> and, and she stored it all up, you know. I mean, she, she, was, she was fabulous that way. Um, but, and oh, and she did the most wicked impersonation of Eleanor that anybody could possibly do. She loathed her cousin Eleanor, but that's another matter. But during, during uh, the peace talks, while Wilson is over there in Paris, there was like a little cabal of Republican senators, most specifically Henry Cabot Lodge um, and the Speaker of the House, Nicholas Longworth, who was married to Alice Roosevelt Longworth. And so there would be this, these five or six people who would meet quite regularly. And as Roosevelt, FDR now, noted in a letter to somebody that they had decided that whatever Woodrow Wilson brought back from Paris they, as Republicans, had to oppose it. Now, can you imagine a Republican politician saying we're against whatever the Democratic president says? <laughs> I mean, have you ever heard of anything like that, ever? Now, now, I think the big reason for this was 
I think they felt, you see, this was a great political triumph, this war. I mean, Wilson proved to be a, a superb commander-in-chief, a great chief executive who, who mobilized. You know, this country, when we went to war, had an army of 120,000. Now, Germany, Russia, they, they have armies in the tens of millions. And we have an army the size of that of Portugal's. And we are now going to go out for, so in a year, he mobilized an entire nation. So I think the Republicans felt that this was a big Democratic win and that Wilson was this great winner now. So they had to say, okay, he may have won the war. We're going to win the peace. So we don't care what he brings back. We're against it, and we will fashion our own peace. And make no mistake about it, and this is the tragic part of the book, up until the last minute, Wilson has suffered his stroke, the treaty comes up for vote after vote, and now it's going to be the last time there's going to be a shot at this. And at the last minute, Wilson has offered a compromise. And it's, I feel, a fairly small compromise. And Woodrow Wilson would not accept it. And so make no mistake about it, he lost his League of Nations, but I think he stabbed himself in the back. I take that back. He stabbed himself in the heart. And he really killed himself. I think. It's, a, it's, it's one of the great tragedies in American history, I think. If te Teddy Roosevelt doesn't enter the 1912 election, would Wilson have won? And if not, how different would the rest of the 20th century have been? Well, gosh. Uh, oh, that's all. And we've, and, and we've got how long? Um, well, uh, let me say this. First of all, I don't do what I call crystal ball history. Uh, there are just too many variables. That being said, I, I, let me say this. I think, I think there's no doubt Woodrow Wilson would have beat Taft. A lot of people think if he had run against just Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt would have won. I don't believe that. I believe the nation was ready for a change for this new kind of not just politics, but new kind of politician, which Wilson clearly was. He was magical on the road. I mean, you read these speeches, which I quote liberally. He did most of these campaign speeches just off the cuff. I mean, they're incredible. I've read thousands of them. I have not found a single grammatical error. Haven't found a single time where one sentence doesn't logically follow another, a paragraph with, filled with metaphor, lovely language. I mean, it's like, who is this man? He really was something special. So I think he would have won. Uh, now, let's say, however, um, let's say Teddy Roosevelt did become president. We would have been in the First World War the first day. And that I don't have to speculate about because Teddy Roosevelt himself said that. I mean, when the war breaks out, he keeps calling Wilson a weak sister. And why are we sitting this out? And, you know, and gosh, the Lusitania went down. That, that's a cause for war. You know, and Wilson's saying, well, you know, it's not exactly a cause for war. Uh, you know, it was a neutral ship, and, you know, and there were guns on the ship, um, and, you know, Americans were warned not to be on the ship. So, uh, you know, he didn't want to go into that war. But Teddy Roosevelt, no question about it. And Teddy Roosevelt even came to Wilson uh, once we got into the war and said, I would like to muster the old Rough Riders. We want to ride again. And Wilson really had to think about it. I mean, and he really did think about it. And just said, there's, there's no way this is going to happen, <laughs> you know. And so it didn't. But I, I, think, I think had there been a Republican in the White House, certainly Teddy Roosevelt, um, we would have been in a lot earlier. And I don't believe the war would have ended sooner. I think it would have gone on and on. Because here was kind of the brilliance of Wilson as, as a commander in chief, which is Wilson said, we are not joining the allies. We are not an allied country. We are the American expeditionary force. We are going over to fight on their side, but not with them. Along, I mean, we'll be alongside, but we do not take orders from the French generals. We have General Pershing, who directs the American army. And as a result of putting it off as long as we did, they are stalemated over there. There are battles that go on for six months at a time, and they gain three inches. You know, and meantime, millions of people are dying in the trenches of the flu, of trench mouth, of you know, every disease you could think of. 
And we stayed out until Wilson said, we are ready to ship two million men over there. And we did. And now, suddenly, the Yanks are coming. And there were, you know, a million or two fresh American soldiers. And man, they just went through like a you know, hot knife through butter. And that was it. And that's why the war ended so quickly. Because he said, we're not here to replenish the French forces. We're here to end the war. One final question. Where did he stand on reparations for Germany? Where, uh, where's this question right coming over from? Here. Oh, uh, <clears throat> where he stood, and he did the best he could, and again, take this thread back to the Civil War, he kept saying to Clemenceau of France and Lloyd George of England, do not punish the Germans. If you punish them, and this he did say, I mean, this I got on the record. He said, if you punish them, we will fight this same war in 25 years. Now, 25, now, if you get out your calendar, he got it to the week. I mean, this is exactly when it all happened. And he just knew because he saw what had happened in the Reconstruction South. He kept saying, we want peace without victory. That's why we went into the war. And, and he came up, you know, here's the thing, as you will see, when he went to Paris, there were 25 countries, 24 countries sitting at the Paris peace talks. 23 of them had very elaborate agendas for treasure and for territory. They all wanted money and land. All these empires, the Romanov, the Hohenzollerns, the Habsburgs, the Ottomans, had all broken up. So half the world was up for grabs. Everyone is just grabbing, grabbing, grabbing. We were the only country, Wilson went over there, said we want no land, we want no money. We just want to rebuild the world. So they are grabbing as much as they can. Wilson keeps saying, don't punish, don't punish. France will have none of that. Germany will, uh, um, England will have none of that. So Wilson every day is just tempering things as best he can and got it down to what he considered was an acceptable level. Now, a lot of people to this day say that the reparations bill that was handed to Germany, which was in fact 5.5 billion pounds, no, sorry, 1.1 billion pounds, 5.5 billion dollars, that that bill was so exorbitant that they were gonna have to go to war again. I say it was not that exorbitant. They could afford it. And the truth is, and this part never gets told, they never paid it anyway. <laughs> they, they paid about 20 cents on the dollar in the end. And the fact of the matter is, Germany was not used to and didn't like being in the position of losing a war. And I believe whether the reparations bill had been for 20 cents or for $20 billion, they were going to go on the warpath yet again. So I don't think it is fair to blame Woodrow Wilson for that, as a lot of people rather simplistically do. Uh, but where he stood was don't tax Germany. Don't do that. Don't stretch them. Let's rebuild. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.